This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, farming, gardening, and food. My guests today on Digging in the Dirt are a little different from other guests I've had. I've never had a philosopher here, and today I have two. Michael Paul Nelson, a professor of environmental ethics and philosophy, forest ecosystems and society at Oregon State University, and distinguished professor of philosophy emerita at the Oregon State University, Kathleen Dean Moore. She wrote a book with Michael Paul Nelson called Moral Ground, Ethical Action for a Planet in Peril. Welcome, professors. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Michael and Kathleen are here today because I read a thought-provoking, kind of shocking article they wrote for the magazine Salon. The article my guest wrote was entitled, Did Western Philosophy Ruin Earth? A Philosopher's Letter of Apology to the World. So let's start with that question you posed at the title of your article. Did Western philosophy ruin Earth? And why do you feel a need to apologize for it? (laughs) That's a great question. Um, You know, what we argue in the in the short essay is, yes, indeed it did, because ideas matter, and the ideas that sit behind the actions that we engage in today ultimately come from, from Western philosophy, um, and we felt the need not only to call that out, but we both realized that, you know, we've been doing this for a long time, professional philosophers teaching classes, and that, that um, you know, we're implicated in this as well. We've been we've been teaching these ideas and perpetuating this this worldview for a long time. So that's what motivated us. And we we saw the Pope's apology, um, the, the the tour of Canada. We have colleagues who have been writing uh, scientists warning to humanity, and so those things kind of crystallized for us. Uh, and we thought about this idea. Hmm. And as for why we should apologize, you know, when you make a terrible mistake. And when that mistake does damage, then the proper thing to do is to say that you are really sorry and then try to do the best you can to uh, make up for the harm you've done. In some ways, uh, in our case, to try to think of a better way to think about the world that doesn't do this kind of harm, but in fact, is a kind of a healing. Hmm. So um, why why are philosophers responsible for that and not the people who are running the system, for instance? Yeah, this this actually goes way back. I mean, I I think about this going back to ancient Greek philosophy and the search for the ultimate stuff of the universe. The ancient Greeks were interested in what we what we would call now science. They would call natural philosophy, and what we would call ethics, they called moral philosophy. Uh, and their pursuit of natural philosophy was really focused on this question of what is the ultimate stuff of the universe. It it was a pursuit that was originally a sacred pursuit. The idea is that you were trying to find that which is sacred in the world, uh, we very quickly did away with that because the answer that they settled upon and that became popularized in the Renaissance and found power in the Industrial Revolution and is still with us today is that ultimately everything is made of atoms and atoms are little, tiny, hard, materialistic particles and that that's the world. The world is this purely materialistic uh, thing Um, The parts of the world bang into one another. That's the only relationship they have to one another. But the sacredness was taken out of this pursuit. And that's largely how in the Western world we still think of of the world today. With one important exception, the human being. Because, of course, while we are atoms smashing around uh, together, we also have soul. We also have a spirit. 
given to us by God, presumably. And this is what places us at the top of the whole chain of being, this whole um, hierarchy of beings throughout the whole universe. We are right up there, we human beings, right next to the angels and only separated by the angels from God. Mm. Not only with spirit, but with the kind of permission that goes with that to have dominion in over the rest of the planet. You, you write in the article that we believe that much of Western European philosophy has gone catastrophically wrong, pushing a worldview that justifies practices that will be seen in the future as unthinkably evil. Primary among these are the profit-driven rape and pillage of the planet and the consequent immiseration of the people. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? That's a pretty wild statement. I think that means Kathy should go first. <laughs> I think it's not so much wild as it is wildly honest. Um, one recognizes that industry in collaboration with governments are involved in the very, very profitable rape and pillage of the planet. Um, we see it happening all around us. And it's not only that uh, the corporations are pillaging the um, oil and the lumber and the water but also as they do it, they are driving people off the land. And so this immiseration of the people is a very important piece of this article. The notion that, that as you destroy people's homelands, you destroy their culture. And as you destroy their culture, you, you destroy their, their well-being and their health, and in some cases, their lives. Why is this okay? We asked ourselves, how can it possibly be the way things are done? How can this be business as usual? And that, I think, is where philosophy comes in. And that's why it's really interesting to hear you state it out loud. I know you don't hear it too much in, in the uh, media or even people talking about this kind of thing. And it's been part of history over time. You know, extraction and exploitation have been sort of the rule of the Western civilization over the years. Well, I will turn that back over to Michael. But let me just say that I think that Western philosophy has been the original greenwashers trying to cover up with other stories the kind of devastation that those ideas are permitting. Yeah, I think what what we do with our ideas is we make that okay. Um, it's okay because humans are special. We're separate from the rest of the world. We're special because we're, you know, whatever you want to say, we're ensouled. Uh, we have this, uh, this quality that makes us different from the rest of the world. So we're separate, we're special, we're, we're superior. Um, so it's okay that we do this, we think, uh, because the rest of the world is inanimate, essentially. Uh, it doesn't have that, that specialness. Um, this shows up in all kinds of places. If you look at the, the origins of forestry, for instance, Gifford Pinchot um, famously said, there are two things in this material world. There are humans and there are natural resources. So there are humans, which are special, and there's stuff for humans, uh, the, that humans use to, to to make their lives more comfortable. But as Kathy pointed out, we're not even very good at, um, at at distributing that benefit to all humans. And partly it's because we tend to associate certain kinds of humans more with the non-human world, right? So the, the conquest of the North American continent was justified on the basis that the millions of people who were here were more like nature than they were like, like humans. So it was okay that that we remove them from the North American continent. Again, this, this, this notion that ideas are what are, are driving us forward in this, 
you know, centuries long pursuit. And we would add in that connection, the subjugation of women throughout history, the notion that women also are of the earth, they are closer to the ground, they are the gatherers of plants, they are material, the way the soil is material. Hmm. And that's why you write uh, this, this strip the sanctity from the world by insisting that only humans have souls, while the rest of creation, forests, wildlife, domestic animals, and quite possibly indigenous people are soulless, unthinking, unfeeling machines created to serve the needs of their human masters. And add the idea that the purpose of science is to increase the human ability to control nature and turn it into human uses. Wow, that's you yeah, know, that's Francis Bacon, right? I mean, um, that the purpose of science is for the the glory of God and the ease of man's estate. Uh, that's why we do science for for Bacon, and and he was incredibly influential uh, in our thinking about what what science is and what purpose it serves in the world. Mm -hmm. So why why pick on the philosophers when it seems like religion's more guilty here? It's really hard, and we debate among ourselves as to whether these ideas grow up out of civilizations, The uh, whether they grow out of civilizations are simply plucked from the air by philosophers and given voice and mm -hmm. given some authority, or whether if the philosophers think these things up and then foist them off on the rest of the world. That, I think, is an unsettled issue. I'm guessing it's both. Yeah, and I think that, you know, if I think about the history of philosophy, uh, the the foundation of Christianity was greatly influenced by the Greek philosophers, um, Augustine or Aquinas, I can't remember which one, called Aristotle the philosopher, and Plato and Aristotle were, their ideas were just unbelievably influential. So it, what happens is it becomes really hard to disentangle what were the philosophical ideas that were, you know, in the air at the time, and the religions that are founded in a in a world of ideas. They're borrowing on those ideas. Really hard to disentangle those things. It, that said, it's also clear that um, what we had, both of them, religion and philosophy, Western philosophy, European philosophy, was the effort to destroy animism, the notion that there is spirit in the natural world. Why would they want this war against animism? Because if there is spirit and worth and value uh, and the urgency toward life in the rest of creation, then that requires some restraint on our part. That requires some respect on our part. And it means that we can't go ahead and take what we want, hurt what we want. This is sort of like getting to the point where now, you know, we come to the modern age when they're, they're, they're anti-woke, which I hate that term. But, I mean, you're it's sort of a burying of what came in history to me that you don't want to talk about these these subjects and therefore you are maybe not an environmentalist because of that reason you know they, they're already it's becoming a right wing left wing thing to be environmentalist or not what do you think about that yeah i i, I kind of have some mixed thoughts about that on on the one hand I think of a lot of my colleagues who I think of as environmentalists also don't want to go where where we go. You know, maybe they go back as far as the Industrial Revolution. They 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 tend to start at the point where we gained the ability to have impact on the world that led to the problems that we have now. And what Kathy and I are doing is like it's not just the ability. 
Uh, it's also the willingness. It's the ideas that what the, what we you know what we can do, and what in some cases we are justified, if not even morally compelled to do, are really about ideas. They're less about technologies and more about ideas. What use we put our technologies to have to do with ideas. So I, I'm not even sure I would sweep in a lot of the environmental movement in this. Um, in this sense that we need to really go back and think about the origin of our ideas. I, I, I think I, my experience, Kathy, is that that makes some of our colleagues just as uncomfortable as, as anything else. What we've done in philosophy is to give moral license to activities that are really immoral. And I think that that shakes people up a bit. But as long as, Kevin, you mentioned being awakened to racism and other kinds of wrongs in the world towards the people. I always go back to Ibram X. Kindi, the wonderful scholar from Boston College, who said, you know, oil companies are fracking. You can't mine without destroying the land. And you can't destroy the land without taking the people off the land. And you can't take the people off of the land without destroying their culture. And you can't destroy their culture without disregarding its worth. And when you disregard the worth of the people and their way of life, that's racism. And so it's a kind of um, indictment of the colonial legacy and the racist legacy that has allowed us to plunder the planet. And as I said, in the as we wrote in the essay, immiserate people. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is a good place to give us a description of terra nullis, that doctrine. You mentioned it in your article. Yeah, terra nullis, um, empty land, Latin for empty land. It shows up in different places um, in slightly different ways, the, uh, North America, Australia. Um, but it essentially means that even though the land is peopled, there are people, although we tend to try to both underestimate their numbers and their kind of impact, their technological sophistication, uh, because what we want to do is say, well, the land is essentially empty. Uh, often that evokes the philosopher John Locke that you know you you have ownership over the land if you mix your labor with it, and so what uh, the the colonists are always trying to do is sort of say they're, the the natives are not mixing their labor with the land they're passive denizens of the North American landscape for instance, and if the land is unoccupied in a significant way even though there are people there it's it's for the taking uh, it it opens up. Uh, a colonialism and and uh, allows for the removal and the disregard for the the native people and their cultures that that already live there, which is a fundamental misunderstanding of the native management of the land, isn't it? Because of course they came into a land that was beautiful. We live in the Willamette Valley, Michael and I. And when the settlers came here, they called it God's country. They called it the Beulah Land. Um, they called it the Promised Land because it was so park-like. That of course didn't mean it was empty. That meant that it was beautifully managed with restraint and with the experience that comes from millennia. So this notion that John Locke gave us, imposed upon us, still exists today in this same place in the Willamette Valley, that um, in the tax structure. If anyone would think that John Locke has no more influence, what they should try to do is try to get a tax break on their wild land without fencing it, plowing it, turning it to wheat. No, you can you get a good tax break on farmland, but you get no break at all on land that you are rewilding or preserving. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in fact, some of the uh, regenerative practices that are coming to fore now are, are being popularized have been practiced by indigenous people forever. <laughs> and we're just rediscovering them and putting them into practice because from uh, the guests I've had on my show, they, these practices work and they, and they are good to the earth. So you um, also write that about the future here, we have men of immense wealth building bunkers and rocket ships to protect themselves from disasters that they have created. You want to talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's an important thing, you know, because you're right that the, the philosophy uh, uh, that took over the world is in going in the wrong direction and leading to moral failings of draw-dropping, world-threatening proportions. Western European philosophy got it horribly wrong. And you also say that this may be our last chance to correct that. Kathy, tell your story about the the man who came up to you after the talk that you gave. The one, the one, the uh, from the American Petroleum Institute. I don't remember what what event it was, but the person who talked about accumulating wealth for his daughter. Oh yeah, I had talked about how important it was to to honor our children by living with restraint, and he said, "Yes, I do love my daughter more than anything else in the world." and I would do anything for her. And that is why I'm going to make as much money as I possibly can so that she can be safe forever. And I thought, wow, first of all, I felt really sorry for his daughter. (laughs) Secondly, I felt sorry for his love gone wrong, but I really felt sorry for all the daughters of all the other people whose livelihoods were going to be diminished and destroyed by the grasping power of this man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a cartoon circulating right now where the father and son are sitting around a fire, and the father says, "Well, you know, we made a lot of money uh, for a long time there." And then, and the son says, "Well, Dad, what are we having for dinner?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a, it's, it's a great it's a great example though of of this ideology, these ideas sort of gone wrong that eventually, and in this, and I trace this right back to Aristotle. For Aristotle, you were fully human to the degree that you were independent and autonomous. Uh, and just think about the radical individualism that we kind of manifest in, uh, in, in the United States and certainly out, out here in the West. And so this is, I mean, the idea in this man's comment to Kathy is, I can do this. I can, I can, by the amassing of wealth, I can become increasingly independent and increasingly autonomous and then find myself sitting around a fire wondering what I'm going to eat tonight uh, at, at the same time. Yeah, well, they're going to be maybe circling the wagons and have their own gated communities or as in the science fiction film, Altered Carbon, go up into towers and live there. Yep, right. And, you know, the the but you you say this is maybe our last chance to get it right. How so? Well, you look at the um, predictions that the scientists are making that uh, the state of the world um, is going to become increasingly challenging. Um, The statement that turned me towards climate work was a statement, two statements. One was um, Gus Smith from Yale, who said, the only thing we have to do to be sure that we leave a ruined world to our children is to keep doing what we're doing now. The other statement came from a panel of scientists, 300 of them, led by a group from Stanford. And they said, unless we take dramatic action right now, by the time our children are middle-aged, the life-sustaining systems of the planet will be irredeemably destroyed. 
I agree. Um, but how do we get more people to understand that? It seems that the message is not getting in to the masses because of things like media. I'll ask you the question. How many big media uh, outlets have asked you to come on to talk about what you wrote? <laughs> including you <laughs> uh none have actually there uh, you go yeah um this essay was an interesting exercise we had this idea early in the summer for this essay and we were both very excited about it we've collaborated a lot together um but this is you know one of those things where we have a lot of ideas that we kind of get moderately excited about but this one rose to the top and so we we wrote it and we and in fact we started shopping it to you know all the best places new york times the guardian and i don't know what we get six or seven rejections before salon uh, finally picked it up so it um it's it's not it's not as popular as we would like it to be to 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 poke in this way um but I, you know partly your question makes me think about this moment in time and in some ways I'm actually really excited about this moment in time because what I see happening is we are starting to recognize. Uh, I've had a number of people, uh, including a representative for the National Science Foundation, say to me lately, you know, we have to do something different. What we're doing now isn't working. Mm -hmm. uh, what he was referring to is the idea that we were spending money on science and that that was going to somehow lead to conservation, that kind of faith that that's how that that cycle worked. Um, and what, you know, there is this kind of head scratching moment at the same time, I see a kind of resurgence of, uh, attention to indigenous wisdom, um, from indigenous cultures around the world. I see the emergence of ideas that are similar to the ones that we're, you know, we're, we're trying to hold up as alternatives popping up in, in different places. And I, I admit that I'm, I'm cherry picking these because I'm looking for them. But 10 years ago, I would have looked for them and not seen them. Right. And I'm I'm starting to see them now pop up. I agree. There's more, you do see more things happening, but it's all about speed and scale for me. <laughs> it is. But let me also say that with a great deal of speed, we're seeing another change that I am extraordinarily excited about. When Michael and I first began this work with the Moral Ground book, we we wanted people to understand that although Climate change is a scientific issue and a technological issue. It is really at base a moral issue. And at that point, when we were writing, was that, how long ago was that, Michael? I probably started working on that book in 08, I would guess. Yeah, okay, so long time ago, we um, had a hard time getting anybody to think about it as a moral issue. But now un people understand that this is a matter of rights violations, human rights, it's a matter of justice. And in fact, people are talking not so much now about working on climate change as they're think, talking about working on climate justice. So suddenly people realize that climate change is causing the greatest violation of human rights the world has ever seen. And it's on that ground that people are taking action against the perpetrators of those rights violations in courts primarily, but also in this big sea change, I think, in how people are thinking about the climate devastation to come. Yeah, yeah, and the other the other side of that is the emergence of all this legislation and policy and statements within constitution about the rights of nature. Uh, these are starting to show up all over the place, not so much in the United States, uh, but in various parts of the world. They're not all wealthy parts of the world that are affirming the rights of it's either the rights of nature or the rights of 
uh, of rivers or the rights of cultures. This is um, this, this is happening at a really fast pace right now. This the the rights of nature movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about. Oh, first of all, let me just tell everybody that we are speaking with. Michael Paul Nelson, a professor of environmental ethics and philosophy and distinguished professor of philosophy emerita at the Oregon State University, Kathleen Dean Moore. And they have written a book called Moral Ground, Ethical Action for a Planet in Peril and came to my attention when they wrote an article for the magazine Salon. I'm I'm really interested in corporate responsibility and, and also maybe corporate action. I always ask my farmers, is there a big farm that is doing regenerative you know, is they're going to try to make money by turning their farm into regenerative. Do you think that corporations is just not part of the makeup of a corporation because the bottom line is to adhere to the bottom line, to make profit? And the, the things that you're talking about, a call uh, for humility to replace hubris, for the service to the earth, to replace service to the economy. You write that, but how likely is that to happen? And well, that's a prediction that we're not really in a position to make. But one thing is very, very clear is that the fossil fuel companies are deceiving us if they are telling us that they are trying really hard to restrain their emissions and that they're trying really hard to switch to renewables. Day after day, crossing my desk is information about how skillfully, how relentlessly the fossil fuel interests are digging in their heels and going to try to squeeze the last drop of oil out of an earth that is going to be spinning towards destruction. Yeah, I partly my answer depends me on which day you, you catch me. Most days, I would say, yeah, the uh, the ideology of, of capitalism um, the ideology that's manifest in most corporations uh, is is not one the, the the ethic that underpins it is a an ethic of exploitation. It is not one that is benefited or can tolerate in any way this idea that you know that the world is animate or the world um, should be attributed intrinsic value. That's that's problematic. Uh, I do see attempts uh, to make a different case. They almost always seem to ultimately fail. So you caught me today and my answer today is, yeah, I, I think of these philosophies as, as in contrast with with one another. They're not commensurable with with one another. Something, something's got to give, something will give one way or another. Uh, the question is whether that something, you know, whether we land softly and peacefully or whether we we crash mightily. Yeah, I'm sort of of the mind now is just how can we mitigate it from being as bad as it could possibly be? Because I mean, we, I think it's going to be bad, but I think we can, you know, make that a little, like you said, softer landing if we could do something right now. But I'm not seeing that happening other than, say, with the youth. What do you think about those, the youth? I mean, do you think that they understand that they're more at jeopardy about this, that all of us oldsters, we're going to be passing away and leaving them this mess? Yeah, one one thing we know about um, Gen Z and and you know in the academy we pay attention to these things because we need to appeal to those students. We need to say you you belong here. You should come and and be at our university. And the one thing that we know is that they um, the the language that's used is really interesting. They suffer mightily from climate anxiety, right? Anxiety is a, a fear really? response, um, and that they think of climate change as the the sort of dominant feature of their future um and they're they're struggling with that and we're seeing that i think more and more in conservation where 
the kind of psychological trauma that we usually think of as associated with individuals, um, depression, anxiety, um, inability to deal with grief is not only coming out in individuals, but it, you're starting to see marks of it in, in the movement uh, as a whole. Um, so I, I think that we should, we oldsters need to think about that. What, what do we do to create a context in which you know, you're not shut down by anxiety, that you um, you can turn anxiety into a, a kind of an empowerment. And the I think that what you're seeing is the embodiment of that um, as it's coming out today, the way that you illustrated is is natural. I mean, it's I'm trying to regain control of a situation that I that I'm afraid of. Uh, and it's a it's a way to to reassert power and control and and sense of self in in a kind of world gone mad we should note too that our students are expressing anger and there is power in anger too um they're saying what what gives i mean how can you elders have wrecked the world so badly and set it on this trajectory and then you say okay young people it's up to you go for it um, that this seems to be an abdication of responsibility, uh, and that's not escaping their attention. So I agree with Michael completely that that the elders need to find some way to come into um, collaboration and empowerment for the young people, not by saying we don't think of this as our job, it's yours, but by saying everybody, we need everybody with every skill set. Yeah, this is a problem that we're facing, existential problem, and I don't know how many people understand that fully you know and the fact that the old really are in charge of the government for instance how many people are in their 60s and 70s and 80s in the u.s government for instance and all the white males that run all the corporations that and what i get from some people is that well i won't be here and it is kind of nice if it's warmer you know <laughs> these are the kind of things you get you know it's like it's crazy. So it's really good to see somebody like yourselves writing something that um, describes some of the, the uh, moral and ethical implications of this. I want to, I want to share a story. A, a, an indigenous ecologist colleague of mine told me, and uh, she works in Montana on a reservation and her field crew are all indigenous youth. And they were out on a field trip. And one of the sources of funding for her work is uh, philanthropy. Um, and they bring philanthropists out into the field and they were on a field trip. I think this was just this last summer uh, and they were, they had a group of philanthropists, you know, white upper-class philanthropists and, you know, th these, these youth that came from the reservation. And one of the things that the philanthropists were, were asking the young people was, you know, well, what do you want to, what do you want to do? What do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, and the first person they asked was this 13-year-old girl. And she looked at the philanthropist and she said, I want to be a good ancestor. Uh, <laughs> nice. Like, like there's any other answer, right? Possible once once that's laid out there. And so that and that was kind of the end of the conversation from what I understand. But that that's interesting that, you know, even if you think you won't be around, uh, and maybe this is also a manifestation of the Western worldview. Once you get away from the hubris of that worldview, you start to realize that it doesn't really matter whether you're around or not. You still have obligations. You have obligations not only to those that came before you, but to those who follow. You have an obligation to be a good ancestor. Bill McKibben is on this. Um, he's onto this idea that that the elders really do have responsibilities, and not only that. Well, the responsibilities grow out of their actions 
when they were younger, but they also have enormous resources. And that he's with his second, let's see, the second act. He's third act. Group, third act. He's trying to set up a group that is um, taking advantage of the energy of elders. Their experience is huge. They have reserves of money. They have huge stake in the future of the earth because of their children and their grandchildren. And so he's saying, you know, now is not the time to go golfing, for God's sake. Mm-hmm. Now is not the time to profess your love for your grandchildren. Now is the time to act in their defense. You've um, hit on something that why I do digging in the dirt and I produce the diagram environmental headlines is for my grandchildren. You know, I'm worried about them and what they what kind of life they're going to be facing as this all comes about. And I guess it's a matter of whether you believe or not, it's going to get pretty bad, you know, and that's something I, it's a difficult conversation. You know, I have people come to me and say, Guy Graham, uh, environmental headlines, boy, they're so negative, Kevin, you know, and I always try to end the diagram with one or two positive stories that there's change happening. Cause I it definitely don't want people to get so depressed. They just give up either. That's the other issue. And so it's, you know, it's a, it's a matter of giving responsibility to people to do something, but at the same time, give, empowering them, I think, you know, so I, I like what you just said there. So why is it important to understand what you're writing in your article about the ethical and moral implications of what we do? You know, for, for me, one of the most important things is the is the recognition that what we experience in the world today and now has a history and it has an intellectual history. It, it doesn't just happen to us. It, it's something, and I think that's really important because it also means that we have a, probably a little bit more control over it than we think we do, that what happened in some ways was a choice. We, we chose to pursue a certain path and yes, we were influenced in that choosing, but it was still culturally a choice, which means that our future is not fixed and that we can choose a different path if we wish to choose a different path. Ideas matter, as you said before, Michael. And if this set of ideas has led us to the catastrophic crisis, then we need to think of something better. And I think that's really the whole point of the article that we wrote in Salon is it's time to come up with a counter narrative. It's time to tell a new story about who we are, what the world is, and how we ought to live. And uh, we're seeing that new story emerge. Uh, We're starting to think uh, in terms of a great convergence where ecology and religion and indigenous philosophy are all coming together to tell a story about a world that is interdependent, contingent, beautiful, uh, deeply uh, interconnected, um, and based on a certain kind of equality of life urgency. And so what we're calling for in this article toward the end of it is real imagining about what set of ideas would lead us toward the kind of world that we want. Hmm. And where do you suggest people go to learn about what's possible and what we want? Well, we have a meeting scheduled in another hour where we're going to start planning about how to write that. But uh, we haven't done that yet. I'm sure that there are a lot of people, particularly um, indigenous people, Robin Wall Kimmerer, comes to mind immediately, who are setting out a new way of thinking about our relation to the world and our place in it. Yeah, I think a great place to start is with Indigenous wisdom, with Robin Kimmer's work, with Viola Cordova's work. Um, there's there's so much coming out in Indigenous philosophy right now 
Kyle Powes White is another another source. Uh, that that's that's a great place to start to see a very contrasting worldview to the the dominant Western worldview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that's interesting you say that because a, a young woman that I found on TikTok, um, she's called the Western Water Girl, and she I said, well, okay, I'm making you the um, the omnipotent uh, controller of water in the Western area, and she goes, oh, okay, so what will you do? And she says, well, for I would like bring in the indigenous people to be part of it. I mean, the decision making on what we're going to be doing with water policy in the Colorado, Arizona, oh, it's it's very complex, and she's very interesting that as a young 24 year old woman can come up with that answer right away i found it very interesting but you know this still comes to me that the media still hasn't embraced the idea to talk about it even you don't even have a weatherman telling you that the the tornadoes were part of global warming for instance or that the drought is the fact that there's no snowpack and that the rivers are drying up you know you can't even move goods on the mississippi this year because the water is so low but this conversation is not happening you know and that's what i worry about and if you know George Monbiot, he's a very active environmentalist in England, and he's pretty clear cut about some stuff. He's tired of all this stuff. He calls it the great silence. And and I think that's a really accurate term. And, you know, and he says that he just wrote an article. I wonder what if you wanted to comment on it. And that is that he felt that the United States is constantly not getting involved with any kind of policy. For instance, the last seven or eight big treaties they have refused to sign and they're not at cop 15 for instance they're not going to be involved in the biodiversity only two countries out of 198 are not there united states and the vatican so that's very interesting to me and he says if this country were a person we'd call it a psychopath and it's not a person we should call it what it is a rogue state its refusal to ratify treaties such as the convention on biological diversity provides other nations with a permanent excuse to participate in name only like all imperial powers its hegemony is expressed in the assertion of its right not to care it seems to me kevin gallagher that he is accurately describing in real terms what you were writing in your paper George Mambio is a brilliant man, and I read him assiduously and admire him very much. My question for him is, let's ask ourselves, why is there this great silence? Why are we silent about it? Is this a business plan? Is this a political campaign? Silences don't just happen. Silence is a verb. To silence means to make people shut up. Why is it occurring everywhere we look? in the United States and who benefits from it and how is it being managed? I think there are answers to those questions and I think they're probably very disturbing. Well, my guest today, I've been Distinguished Professor of Philosophy Emerita at Oregon State University, Kathleen Dean Moore, and Michael Paul Nelson, a professor of environmental ethics and philosophy at Oregon State as well. They co-authored a book called Moral Ground, Ethical Action for a Planet in Peril. This has all been a great conversation. I hope it helped people to sort of flesh out some of these issues that we were talking about today. Thank you for coming. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having us. Thanks. You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher.